And our reading is taken from Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 42. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoners who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt. For there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and your herds, as you've said, and go. And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. For otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added, and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs, wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed, and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. They were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast, because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. There are three kinds of lies. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. No one knows for sure who first coined the phrase, though Mark Twain attributed it to the Earl of Beaconsfield, Benjamin Disraeli. Who knows whether that's a truth or a lie, but at least we can say for certain it's not a statistic. What do we make of the numbers recorded in Exodus chapter 12? Exodus 12? Were the people of Israel in the land of Egypt for 430 years to the day, as it says in 1241? How does that equate with the record that there were just four generations from Levi down to Moses? Levi's son was Korah, Korah's son was Amram, Amram's son was Moses. 400 plus years is a long time for just four generations of children. So maybe some generations were left out, or maybe as a rough estimate, a period of 100 years was assigned to each generation with the extra 30 perhaps pertaining to Joseph's period in Egypt before his brothers joined him there. Looking at Exodus 15, that looks like a a likely explanation, for that Abraham is told that his descendants will stay in Egypt for 400 years and come back in the fourth generation. So for my money, generation 100 years, round numbers, is what we're working with here. 
People also struggle a bit with the claim in Exodus 12.37 that the number of people coming out of Egypt numbered around 600,000 men on foot plus the women and children. I mean, if you factor in the numbers of women and children, you're looking at a group of people numbering perhaps two to three million plus the large numbers who accompanied them. That would have been a massive number compared with what we know of population figures around the time. It would have taken unthinkable quantities of manna and quail to keep them all alive in the wilderness for 40 years. Apart from that, if you have people, people say, walking six abreast, and you allow a yard's gap for each row of people, you can fit in about 10,000 people in a mile. 2.4 million would cover a distance of 240 miles from beginning to end, which is the distance from Egypt to Canaan as the crow flies. It doesn't make sense. And why do the Israelites say when they get to the Promised Land, there aren't enough of us to fight the inhabitants there? They would have overwhelmed the inhabitants by sheer numbers. 600,000 as a military force was probably 30 times the size of Pharaoh's army, according to what we know from those days. So what are we to make of these statistics? Back in 1906, someone called Flinders Petrie argued that the word translated thousands can also mean a tribal subsection or a clan. In that case, we should understand Exodus 12, 37 as saying that about 600 clans left Egypt. And actually, if 70 people went down into Egypt after four generations, they had lots and lots of children as they did. 600 clans, that, that sounds plausible, perhaps. In Numbers chapter 1, a census is taken of the tribes, and each tribe is said to have so many thousand, so many hundred fighting men, aged over 20 years of age, yielding a grand total of 603,000 550. Whoever all added all these figures up took the reference to thousands literally. But if you take the word thousands here to mean clans and add the figures up separately, you get 598 clans with a total of 5,500 men, aged 20 and above, who are fit for military service. Dan is the most powerful tribe, with 62 clans and 700 fighting men. Manasseh is the weakest with just 32 clans and 200 men. And if you have 5,500 men, aged 20 and above, fit for military service, if you factor in the women and children as well, you look at a total company of perhaps 20,000 plus, which is still big, but perhaps more believable than 2 to 3 million. Well, that's a technique that works perhaps for Exodus 12 and Numbers 1, but it doesn't work for other passages where people are numbered in their thousands, so we need to be careful. It may just be that, as R.K. Harrison has said, the figures are to be taken as symbols of relative power, triumph, importance, and the like, and are not meant to be understood literally. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. You can make of them what you will. Statistics of casualties in the First World War vary hugely. Between 8.5 million and 18 million combatants killed. Think about that for a moment. Between eight and a half million, maybe as many as 18 million, 10 million people, nobody knows. 10 million people, no one's sure, lost or missing 
or dead. Each one of them an individual. The recorded figures are highly misleading for a variety of reasons. After the war, there was a tendency for governments to maximise the number of casualties their country had lost as a way of saying, look how much the Great War damaged us. Look how much it cost us. Look how much it affected us as a nation. While the war was actually being fought, the opposite tendency prevailed. The number of casualties was minimised, downplayed to try and avoid the sapping of morale, bringing home to people just how many people were losing their lives in the war. Over the course of the war, vast numbers of people simply went missing. There was no way of knowing whether they'd been killed, taken prisoner or wounded. The military tended to count the living rather than the dead. So they counted the men who went back from the front to hospital because they'd been injured. They counted the member who, number who came back from hospital to the front to fight again. They didn't pay so much attention to what happened to those who didn't come back. It didn't matter whether they were killed or whether they were shipped home because their injuries meant they would never fight again. They only recorded those who were fit to fight and weren't quite so bothered with what had happened to those who didn't come back. So numbers are notoriously unreliable. And how did people die? Many were killed in action. Many simply disappeared into the mud on the Western Front. 180,000 Russian soldiers died while they were being held as prisoners of war in German POW camps. The Ottoman Empire lost nearly half a million men through starvation, sickness and privation, twice the number of those actually killed in battle. The Spanish flu that spread throughout the world towards the end of the war probably originated in America and was brought over here by American soldiers. 38,000 American soldiers died of Spanish flu without even leaving the shores of the United States. And what about civilian casualties? Even harder to measure. Do you count those or not? 10 million, perhaps, died during World War I. After the war, because of the weakness and privation, there was 50 million more lost their lives because of the Spanish flu. Horrific, mind-boggling statistics of a conflict that devastated the world. The figures and the scale of them can numb our minds to the point where we forget that every single one of those millions of deaths was an individual tragedy. Someone's son. Someone's father. Someone's brother. Someone's friend died in that devastation. And the loss and the bereavement was personal each time. And it's in that context that we look at the tragedy of the death of the firstborn in Exodus 12, 29 to 30. You don't see any statistics there. No attempt to record numbers. Just a brief account which brings home the personal nature of each and every bereavement. Writing this sermon, I twice mistyped lost their lives and typed lost their loves by mistake. 
It's an easy mistake to make because the I and the O are next to each other on the keyboard. But it's true. Every life lost is also a love lost. Let me read you those verses again. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Every death was personal. Everyone was affected. There were towns devastated like that in the First World War, particularly towns in the north of England. Durham is the classic example. As in many towns, the men who joined up there joined up together in what were known as Powell's Regiment. They, they lived and worked alongside each other at home. They fought and died alongside each other in France. Many of them at the Battle of the Somme in 1916 when 20,000 people died on the first day. From Durham, 6,353 men were killed in the First World War. That was 15 out of every 200 people in the city. That means that if we as a congregation had been in Durham 100 years ago, we probably would be mourning more than 15 people killed in the course of the war. And these were all men serving in the forces. One in five men from Durham were killed in the Great War. One in five. We used a verse from Lawrence Binion's poem, For the Fallen, earlier in the service, they shall, not, they shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. The following verse says, They mingle not with laughing comrades again. They sit no more at familiar tables of home. They have no lot in our labour of the daytime. They sleep beyond England's foam. Every death, every bereavement was a personal tragedy. It's not about statistics, it's about those brothers, fathers, sons who never came home. There was not a town without someone dead. And you still see the war memorials today. And it was because everyone knew someone who had lost someone that the nation after the war determined not to forget, but to remember those who lost their lives. Today, remember those who died in the Great War and in the Second World War and in conflicts since then. Remembering is really important. And you can see that from the importance that's, that's attached to it in Exodus. The death of the firstborn in Egypt comes in Exodus 12. It's a long chapter, 51 verses actually. The death of the firstborn is recounted poignantly in just two of those verses. What's the rest of the chapter about? It's about remembering. It's about remembering. How do you commemorate an event like that? 
The Israelites were told to look back and remember how their lives had been spared. In a real unavoidable sense, they owed their lives to God. Those who have been spared a tragedy often ask, why me? Why am I alive and, and that person is dead? When someone else has died, it's natural to think that could have been me, or maybe even that should have been me. Sometimes people can feel guilty just for surviving. In the news this year, they're talking about thankful villages. There are apparently about 54 of them out of all the thousands and thousands of villages in in England and Wales. 54 villages where those who went to fight all came back. They didn't lose anybody. And that caused a huge conflict of emotions. There was gratitude and relief and there was guilt and shame as well. Why, why should our village have been spared when the neighbouring village lost sons or fathers or brothers? Very, very difficult for those villages to cope with. That sense of shame persisted over many years. If we're alive, if we're alive and someone else has died, How do we react to being spared? Such times we need to remember that forgiveness and life are God's gifts. And he doesn't give them to us because we deserve them. Every firstborn son in Israel that night knew they were only still breathing the following morning because of God's mercy to them. They'd been spared, while others had not. And they were called to remember that, and never to forget it. But if I wake up on the following morning, and I'm a firstborn son, and my life has been spared, what do I do with that gift? By the grace of God, my father still has me as a son. It's down to me to be the best son I can be to my father. And that goes for all of us. We live in a world where people have lost fathers, brothers, daughters, sisters, mothers, sons, friends, in tragic circumstances. We remember. We grieve. We may wonder why our life has been spared. But if others have died and we are alive, particularly if others have died so that we might live, it is our role to be the best son father, brother, sister, daughter, mother, friend, that we can be. Because we, we, it's very easy for us not to have been around. For the people whom we love to be grieving our death, but they are not. And we make the most of the gift of life that we have by living the best that we can in those relationships that we have. We have relationships that have been taken away from others forever. We are called to value those relationships and make the most of them because it is a privilege still to have them. Those who've lost loved ones will never forget those whom they've lost. And we stand alongside them to remember and to grieve But as well we need to consider, if God has spared my life, then my life is his gift to me. 
and his calling to me is to be the best person I can be in terms of living my life for him. My life is his gift to me, and I aim to repay that gift by living my life as well as I can for him. And to some extent, all of us are in that situation because Jesus gave his life for us, did he not? That we might live. He died in our place. Our life is his gift to us. We are called to live it well, to be the best people that we can be because life is a privilege that not everybody has. Treasure it. Make the most of it. Live your life for God who gave his son for you. Live your life for those members of your family who still have you, whatever your relationship with them is. Be the best that you can be because life is God's gift to you. Let's pray. Lord, we've taken this morning to remember those who've died, those who've been bereaved. It's been right to take the time to do so. We recognise the tragedy of premature death. The irreversible nature of that loss. And we pray again that you'd comfort those who are bereaved. That we are people who are living and breathing. Who have today and tomorrow and the rest of our lives ahead of us. Thank you for those who died that we might live. Thank you that Jesus died that we might live. Help us to live our lives well for you and for those around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.